Today's episode is sponsored by Hobbs Bonded Fibers. Hobbs Batting has proudly produced batting in Waco, Texas since 1978. Hobbs Batting provides superior integrity to quilts and quilted projects, and they invite you to contact them for a complimentary batting sample pack. Details will be shared at the end of this episode, along with information on how you could be the lucky winner of a collection of Hobbs Tuscany batting products. Thank you so much, Hobbs Bonded Fibers. And now, here's the show. Welcome to episode 142 of the Walshy Naps podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Today, we're talking about building a handmade business with my guest, Jessica Marquez. Jessica is a lifelong maker who found her way back to textiles while working on an MFA in photography from Rochester Institute of Technology. After countless hours working digitally, retouching images and staring at a computer screen, she longed for hands-on analog making. She taught herself embroidery and then never stopped stitching. And in 2008, she started a creative handmade business called Miniature Rhino, named after a young cousin's imaginary friend, a dentist she called Dr. Rhino. Miniature Rhino became a symbol of creativity and imagination and seeks to inspire and teach hands-on skills through a line of embroidery kits, patterns, classes, and books. Jessica Marquez, welcome. Hi, thank you, Abby. Yeah, thank you so much for coming on the show. I'm really excited to talk to you. I've been a fan, especially of your Instagram feed, which is so beautiful for a long time. So it's great to have the chance to hear more about you and your history. So for people who maybe are not yet familiar with Miniature Rhino, can you just start by describing kind of the products that you sell? Like what what does your line kind of consist of right now? My work is primarily textile-based, and I make a lot of kits. So I have different ranges of kits and styles, constellations, monograms, mending. And yeah, I think that's the question, right? Yeah, that mostly sums it up. I would say constellations, monograms, and mending is really right now kind of the the range that you offer. And um, and we'll kind of dig into how that came to be, like how those different products got here and what the success with each of them has been. But to back it up a little bit, I know you live in New York City now, but are you originally from California, from the West Coast? Yeah, I'm from the greater Los Angeles area. Uh, All my family is there and I miss it a lot. Living in Brooklyn is really inspiring and fun. There's so many like creative people here, but I miss the, the eternal summer of California for sure. Yeah, I'm sure. So, um, what, what were you like as a kid? Were you a pretty creative kid? Were you making things and being artistic or not? Did you not discover that aspect of yourself until later? Oh, no, no, no. I was always like making something. My family's super creative. My aunts would get together and be making like cards and scarves and the kids would have their own table and we'd be doing like perler beads and stamping. And so I grew up always surrounded by makers and people teaching me how to embroider and crochet and make really 
probably ugly weavings, <laughs> just always trying something new and different. And my mom was really interested in, in the arts. And so she did photography as a young person and brought that into my life too. Just always wanting to share something fun and creative. And also it was like a thrifty thing, like, oh, we're not going to buy it. We're going to make it together. And what did your parents do for work? My mom worked for GTE and then Verizon for a long time. And my dad was an accountant. And they were just kind of creative, you know, in their free time with family and with you. My mom was really creative. My dad had like a really supportive uh attitude but he wasn't really like into making stuff he cooked he (laughs) he was creative that way and that was also really inspiring and he loved to like listen to music and that was always happening in my house so there was always some kind of inspirational thing happening but not um he wasn't so much hands-on my mom was really hands-on to the point where it's sometimes I was like, can I have my project back, you know? <laughs> yes, I do know. <laughs> yeah. Um, I do tend to sometimes go overstep my bounds with my own kids, which is how I know. So yeah. um, it's hard to be like, okay, here you go. <laughs> yeah, I find myself doing that too sometimes when I'm teaching. I'll be like, I'll find my hands kind of like wanting to like take over and just be like, hey, let them do it. Right, exactly. (laughs) So where did you go for undergrad? I went to a state school in California called Cal State Northridge. It was just a basic, basic college, nothing crazy. But what was cool about it is that they had um, a photo program that I got really interested in, but they didn't have much else. So uh, they had this exchange program where for a year you got to pay in-state tuition and go out of state. And I went to University of New Mexico for a year and they had an amazing um, arts department. They had medals and photography and book binding. And I went crazy and took a lot of classes there. So I graduated from Cal State Northridge, but I do credit a lot of like my creative exploration with the combination of those two schools. Oh, yeah, that's pretty neat. Um, And then how did you end up moving out east? I had no idea after college what I should do. I worked at a photo lab. I graduated with like a basic arts degree with a concentration in photo. And I was not sure really what I should do, but I loved photography. So I applied to graduate school And um, I got in at Rochester Institute of Technology. So I went and that's how I ended up on the East Coast and then just never came back (laughs) to the West Coast. Got it. Okay. Um, And so so you got this photography MFA. And then after that, did you sort of have an idea of what kind of career you wanted or sort of what happened next? I was so naive. I was like, oh, I'm going to go to New York City and like have photo shows now. (laughs) I just thought like, (laughs) I'm going to have some gallery shows. Like, it's that easy. Like, I just walk into New York City, you know. I didn't realize that that's just not how it works. It's a lot of what they call pay to play in photo. So you, you enter a lot of shows, you do a lot of photo reviews, and you're paying 
exorbitant amount of money to get your photos printed or framed or the entry um, costs to enter into shows. And it just was really off-putting to me. So I didn't know what I was doing. The whole time I was in graduate school, I had a friend who was like, oh, you need to make an Etsy shop. I didn't even know what Etsy was, but um, she would see like the books I was making or like the physical things I was making, the gifts. And she was like, oh, this would be perfect for you. And I said, as soon as I get a job, I'll make an Etsy shop. (laughs) So I got a job as an archivist in in the city at a really nice gallery and immediately hated (laughs) working there and started my Etsy shop. I see. That's interesting. It's nice that a friend of yours sort of noticed and realize maybe where you should head and was nice enough to sort of point that out to you and um and also that you were able to take that you know advice to heart so yeah yeah okay so so you started this um Etsy shop kind of as a, a way a little salvation while you were working a job <laughs> you didn't love it sounds yeah, like it was really nice my like desk didn't face like everybody else's so I could like be looking like I was working very diligently and just be on Etsy all day. (laughs) I I think you're not alone in (laughs) doing that. So, so what were the first items that you put, like what were the first products that you put in the Etsy shop? (laughs) When I go back and look at um, my stuff, I always kind of like giggle because I was just playing around. I made like handmade handbound books. I did um, paper banners that like I would make little stamps and stamp words on them. I did these little, what I call cabinets of curiosity. I would find these little vintage bottles and curate these little collections of vintage items in them. I still love those hand type a little card catalog with all the contents that were in them. I was just really playing. And I also started doing hand embroidered um, custom pieces. And people really responded to that mainly because it was customed and made just for them. Okay. So the hand embroidered custom pieces, were these like initials or were they something else or people like words or names or? Yeah. So they were words. They were, they were names in like a small four inch hoop. Um, that I would stain and they were like almost like a tree carving those those little old timey carvings where you'd see a name and the the, the heart with oh, two yeah. names in the middle. Mm-hmm. that was how they were like based off of and basically I was going to my grandparents I don't know what anniversary it was it was an impressive anniversary and I didn't have a gift and so I stitched them this piece and then I took a picture of it and put it in my Etsy shop for Valentine's Day and then they just started selling Nice. And this was back in what, maybe 2000, like seven, eight. Okay. Right. And Etsy, by the way, then was quite different from Etsy is now. Very, 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 very. Maybe you can describe for people who sort of are newer to Etsy, what Etsy was like in the good old days. I remember I would get messages daily from other sellers that were just like, hey, I like what you do. Do you want to trade? Or it would be very personable. I, I like felt like I knew a lot of the sellers. I felt like I knew a lot of the Etsy staff since they were based in Brooklyn and I was based in Brooklyn. They'd had a lot of events. So there was a really face. There was a face to Etsy that it's just grown beyond that at this point. Right. You taught like a craft night there a little later on. 
Yeah, that was like one of my first um, classes that I ever taught. And it was so overwhelming because they had a sponsor, Hancock Fabrics, I think it was. They gave away free fabric and people went nuts. And so there was like hundreds of people there and I'd never really like taught before. (laughs) And I was very overwhelmed. I think we had to do two sessions of it. Wow. It was like trial, trial by fire. It was really fun though. Um, okay. So yeah. So you were selling on Etsy and things started to sell. And I'm wondering if there was kind of a turning point where you, there must have been, where something happened and you kind of felt like, hey, I could just do this. You know, like I don't necessarily need to work in a maybe conventional seeming job. You know, I could... I could give this a go and and this thing could be my job. I remember, I think it was USA Today was like doing a thing about handmade and people who sell handmade. And I remember they wanted to do like a little interview and I was in the closet of my job, like on the phone. <laughs> and, I, and I was like, maybe I shouldn't be here. <laughs> maybe I should like, should be like making stuff at home and not hiding in the closet that I'm actually trying to do this thing, you know? Yeah, like literally in a closet. Yeah, that was a fun thing. But I just realized that it was probably way too soon to quit my job, but I would enjoy it more. And if I could dedicate that time that where I was at work to the business, maybe I could scrap scrap together enough to like pay rent. And I just did it. So did you put yourself on like a plan? I know some people I've talked to put themselves on like a six-month plan where they're going to like save money and cut back hours and that sort of thing. Or were you just like, yeah, next Friday is my last day? (laughs) Well, first I asked if I could have one day off a week. Like it was at the point in my job where you asked for a raise and I was like, hey, instead of a raise, can I just like work one less day? And they said, yeah. And then even when that wasn't enough, I felt like, okay, I will make the transition. So kind of was like, I don't know. I didn't, I didn't like save money or anything. I wasn't that smart, but <laughs> I did like slowly kind of plan for it and then just did it. But there, I probably shouldn't have. Like in hindsight, I should have saved and I'm more, I'm, I'm really more of a just dive into it kind of person and figure it out as I go. I still am doing that today. And what makes you feel like looking back, like you probably shouldn't have? Were there moments afterward where you were like, ooh, this isn't actually, you know, (laughs) working? I mean, because it takes so, I mean, it takes, you know, they say it takes 10 years to build an overnight success or whatever. Like it takes a long time to, you know, to build something that actually is going to sustain you financially, usually. I mean, it's very rare that it's not that case. So I'm just wondering if afterward there were moments when you were like this, I'm going to have to go get a job again. No, I, I, I feel lucky in that I, sometimes I'll be like, I kind of want a job because (laughs) I want like steady health insurance and all that kind of stuff. But I've been lucky in that it's always seemed to work out some way or another. And there's always been like times where I'm struggling or need help or feel so overwhelmed figuring this stuff out. But I, I said that maybe I should should have waited because I could have kind of built up a little bit of padding financially or just not have felt as stressed in the beginning trying to figure out a structure 
like a simple structure for like what I was doing. But mm-hmm. it was all kind of flying by the seat of your pants kind of thing. Right. Okay. So then when you did quit your job and started really devoting your energies to your handmade business, um, how did things for your handmade business shift and change and grow? Um, I mean, what were you able to do right after that that you hadn't necessarily been able to do before? I took on way more custom orders and custom work and I started teaching more. And the more I put into it, the more I was getting back. Like that, that's when like blogs were just huge. I would get a lot of press via blogs and um, I was making more sales, which was great. But I also didn't realize like how physical it would be. Because you were doing, all of your income is really dependent at that point on finished products. Like somebody (laughs) would send you a request for a custom order and you would actually stitch out that product and then send it to them. And so you know, in order to make money, you actually had to make something. Exactly. Yeah. And then I think that's when I started getting approached by places to teach and places to have a product in their stores. And I was like, oh, I could do that. I didn't even really consider this. And that kind of helped shift the business at that point because it was too much for me to, to do that kind of process where all your money was dependent upon those custom orders and you're always behind just by the nature of doing custom work. You're like literally always behind and that stress would get to me. It would just feel overwhelming to be like one order or 10 orders. It still felt like, (gasps) you know. Yeah, I know that feeling. And, you know, you're faced at that moment with a choice of bringing on a, you know, a person who can stitch with you and help, you know, help you make the custom orders and kind of grow your business, scale your business that way, or, you know, basically start selling instructions, um, whether that's through teaching or through selling kits or patterns. Yeah. Yeah. And for me, that felt so much more physically felt better. And then time-wise, it was better for me. I I didn't really want to hire someone to stitch for me. Just I don't know. It just didn't feel right. I mean, it it's right for some people and that is the best way for them to scale. But it's often, it's a very different business model, you know, and it just sort of depends on how you feel and what your vision is for the future and for how this company is going to, going to grow, you know? Yeah. Um, so I was really okay with letting that, with yeah. letting that go. Like for a long time, it felt like that was what I did. And then when I decided to stop doing custom work, I was like, oh, yeah, (laughs) this is much better. Because it's just like I actually physically hurt myself. I still have to this day um, chronic pain in my neck and my shoulder. And that's also from just cutting and sewing and all the other kind of things I do. But it really was, I really did hurt myself by trying to take on too much too fast. Yeah, I want to take a minute now to talk with our sponsor, Hobbs Bonded Fibers, and the Director of Sales and Marketing for their craft and retail products, Stephanie Hackney.
My name is Stephanie Hackney, and I'm the Director of Sales and Marketing for Hobbs Bonded Fibers, producers of Hobbs Batting. Can you tell me a little bit about what Hobbs Bonded Fibers is best known for? Sure. So we have been making batting since 1978, so that's 40 years, and we're most well-known for our 80-20 product line. That's a product that's 80% cotton and 20% poly, but what many people may not know is that we've got a whole line of products, and each one of them has different benefits for your quilting projects, and our newest is our Tuscany Supreme Cotton. It's about 54% more cotton than we put in our normal cotton battings and it's extra plush and soft and cuddly and is great for all sorts of quilting projects. We're probably also very well known for our show quilt double bats. Uh, so these are batting combinations that many of the very famous show quilters use in their quilts. And that would be things like our cotton wool batting layered with a layer of wool on top. And the primary reason that people use wool on top of their show quilts is because wool doesn't have a memory for creases. So it provides an excellent finish for quilts that have been sent into a show that may have been folded up for uh, an extended period of time. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. That's so neat. Um, I know you have a giveaway going on for Walshy Naps listeners. So can you tell us how people can enter? Absolutely. So what we're going to do is we're going to be giving away a collection of our batting products. It is one of each of our Tuscany batting products, and those are our products that are hand cut, folded, and packaged. And all you need to do to enter is to send an email with the subject line, while she naps giveaway, to shackney, that's S-H-A-C-K-N-E-Y, at HobbsBondedFibers.com, and that's H-O-B-B-S-F-I-B-E-R-S.com, and just put in there why you'd like to win this, and we will choose one winner randomly and get them out of collection of batting. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Stephanie. Thank you. We're uh, looking forward to being a regular sponsor on your show. Awesome. Take care. Thank you so much, Hobbs Bonded Fibers. And now back to my conversation with Jessica. And so was there a moment when you shifted everything? I know for me, I also started out making handmade goods and then shifted to selling instructions and supplies um, in 2013. And I just remember the day that I did it, I actually like emptied my entire shop. Like I delisted all the listings. I took them all yeah. down. And then I just put up the one I had at that <laughs> pattern. At that time I had one pattern and I just yeah. put up my one pattern and that was all that was in the shop, you know, for a uh, few weeks. Must have felt like triumphant in a way, but also like it's just this one little item, but then you're like, I did it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I knew I needed to make a change. And for me, and sounds like perhaps for you, like that was actually the moment when my business started to become profitable. Like I, I knew, like I couldn't make it work previously. And then once I started selling instructions, I was able to actually have a business, not just a hobby. Yeah, I definitely felt like I could grow it more, but I, I still was, I th it took me a long time to transition because I felt scared to give it up totally. But when I did, I still was trying to figure out, well, kidding is a lot of work too. Like, yeah. <laughs> 
putting then together went, kits. Yeah, it is a ton of work. And then trying to figure that out. It, it was, um, I always feel like it's just like growing is always just asking more questions and trying to figure out what I do now. That It's always very uncomfortable to me figuring yeah. that growth out and how to transition and make something else work. And I'm at the point now or two where I'm like, it's overwhelming to do kits. <laughs> right. Right. Because right now you have a level of popularity that makes that very hard. Um, so when you first launched with instructions and kits and things like that, what was, was that the constellations in the beginning or was it something else? Yeah, it was the constellations. I actually, I was teaching at Pearl Soho at the time and they wanted to take those designs for wholesale. And so then I had to figure out how to make them into a kit. And my first kits were really horrible because they were like in muslin bags. So you couldn't even see what was in it. But yeah, that was my first kits. And then I did that for forever because I didn't know what else to do. And just to to clarify for people, these are an embroidery hoop with like a navy fabric. Is it navy or black? It's navy. Okay, with a navy fabric and then a constellation that you stitch um, yes. So and, it's like the zodiac sign for all, all 12 of the zodiac signs. Right. And um, what? how did you first <clears throat> sort of come to that idea? Was there something that you made for as a gift or something like that, like the other ones? Yeah, actually, I think it was my boyfriend who suggested doing constellations. Maybe it's because I was doing the custom hearts at the time and looking for some other way to customize some other design. And that was really nice because it's still personable, but I could I could make them beforehand. Right. So I was actually using, doing those custom made too before they were kits. I see. And that transitioned into a kit. And then it, Pearl Soho wanted them. And so it became... Yes. And then that that was me trying to figure out how to make a package that was, and I didn't understand anything about like retail ready or anything like that. I was just like, um, here, (laughs) you know, try to make something look nice, but then not even understanding the demands of like being inside of a retail shop and what it needed to, to, to be. Right. So talk a little bit about how that product has evolved from a packaging standpoint. Sorry, it sounds like it started out in a muslin bag, which you couldn't see yeah. through and is not yeah, so ideal. would open it up and peek and it would mess up like the, the kit, make it look messy and wrinkly. And then there's, it's actually really interesting to see like all the different versions of the instructions printed out. And like, how, then I got a designer to help me design and even the layout of the fabric. I used to put a, a circle around the design so you know where to put the hoop. And then I, I was like, that's dumb. No one needs to know where the hoop goes. Like they know the hoop goes over this. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. Then I, tra- there was a point where I did, I think, plastic bags and then plastic sleeves. And now I've even transitioned to true cellophane instead of plastic trying to be as environmentally friendly as I can. And I heat seal each one. So it's it's quite a process to see from the very beginning to how it is now. And things change. Like Daris, who supplies hoops, has changed their manufacturer and their hoops are not the best anymore. And so now I'm like, should I not have hoops? That would change everything for my packaging now because 
it says it contains a five inch embroidery hoop. So then I'd have to change my packaging and uh, it's, it gets very um, complicated, even these really simple things. Right. You might have to find a new supplier then of hoops that meet your standards. Yeah. Yes. And sourcing is is really time consuming. And I think people sometimes don't realize how much effort goes into sourcing. I don't think so either. I get questions quite often where they'll email me and be like, where do you buy this? And it used to happen more than it ha- has happened lately, but it always kind of throws me like I spend a lot of time Googling. Right. It's a lot of effort. Yeah, it's a lot of effort to figure out how to source. Um, Okay, so you started with that product and it sounds like you were teaching at Pearl Soho. How did you get into Pearl Soho? Um, Like how did you meet them and sort of start establishing a relationship with them? Uh, They reached out to me. I think that they were wanting to expand their classes and um, I started Uh, I shared with them my embroidery work. And so then I just started teaching hand embroidery classes there. Nice. And they've since switched to um, all, then it was like really open, but now they since switched and they do like mainly their own thing, their own teaching. Yes. And using their own kits and stuff. So it's very branded, very on. I see. Point. Yes. Interesting. Okay. And I know you had given some of your kits as well to Natalie Channon. You took a, a workshop with her, it sounds like, and yeah. and gave her some of your kits. And that led to a relationship as well. How do you... Oh, maybe I shared this or something. I'm a very good Googler. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so a couple of years ago, I uh, for, my, for my birthday, I treated myself to a workshop with her because I really admire her work, her business ethos, how she's built it. And just what they make is so beautiful. So I went there and I was like, I'm going to bring her an A and a C kit. <laughs> and and these um, are the to- initial, you have another yeah. line of kits that are the letters of the alphabet, but it's basically almost like a monogram. So yeah. an A and a C would be for Alabama Channon. Exactly. And I thought, like, I'm always embarrassed when I do these things, but then I think, like, if someone did that for me, it'd be nice. But then I was so shy to, like, oh. But, yeah, I gave it to her, and um, she thought it was really nice, um, something that she could do with her daughter. Yeah, and then they picked up some of the kits for their their shop, which was really nice. Yeah. I didn't expect that at all. And it wasn't me trying to, (laughs) you know— market myself. I just really liked what she did and wanted to share with her. And and she carries, um, Alabama Shannon carries your kids. And and then also when your book, which we're going to talk about next, but when your second book came out, they did like a post helping to promote it on the on their blog as yeah. well. So nice. Yeah. And that was like, I felt like life achievement unlocked. Like when someone you really love recognizes you or just, you know, likes what you do, it feels so nice. Yeah, absolutely. And I I just think it's, I I draw that attention to that just because I think developing relationships like that is so important. And, you know, it's very different from cold emailing somebody and just saying, hey, promote my book or, Mm -hmm. you know, want my kits or whatever. I mean, sometimes that can work for sure. But, um, you know, because you often, I mean, it's, and it wasn't fake either. Like you authentically really obviously admire her and, 
Um, I'm, I'm sure you've probably done this with other people as well over the years, but it just really is um, an important part of building a small business is building relationships like that. And that's intimidating too, to have that face-to-face interaction sometimes. Like for me, sometimes I have to um, kind of build up that courage to to say hi or to talk to them. And even though I was taking a class with her, I was a little nervous to do that. But yeah, it does work out. It's nice. And it it does help in the creative community for you to feel more involved when it, in it when you know other makers too. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so then you got the opportunity to write a book in 2012 called Stitched Gifts, and it was published by Chronicle Books. And I'm always curious to hear how book deals come to be. So (laughs) was this an idea that you had and you pitched to several publishers, or was this an idea Chronicle had and they found you, or how did this come to be? Actually, an editor from another publisher reached out to me uh, he had seen my work and he thought it might make a great book. And um, he encouraged me to kind of write a proposal. And I pitched that proposal and ended up going with uh, Chronicle in the end. But it was something that I hadn't really thought was even possible. I didn't think like, oh, I really would love to write a book. But when the idea was presented to me, I said, yes. <laughs> Yes, I would like to do this. It it was um it gave me kind of like permission to want it. Yeah, oh, I love that. And I also really like the the fact that you um you know, went ahead and wrote the proposal but didn't just send it to the original publisher that had reached out to you, but that it sounds like you shopped it around. Publishing world is so weird to me cuz I didn't even realize that that would be possible. Um but he he was the one who put me in touch with an agent and the agent was like, yes, this is, this, this is what we should do. And so I said, okay, cause you know better than I do. Yeah. In the end, it did kind of feel weird to me though, to not go with um, him, but it was all trying to make the best book. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I just think that oftentimes, especially in the craft world in a scenario like yours, where somebody reaches out to you unexpectedly and says, hey, your work is great. It would make a great book. Have you ever thought about writing a book? The feeling you can get is one of flattery and just like, wow, you know, this person. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. This person is saying I'm good enough. And what can happen when you have that feeling is that you can easily be, I guess, not necessarily manipulated, but you can fail to um, sort of be your best advocate um, just because you are so grateful that this person has yeah. chosen you. Um, and and you should be, that's awesome. But um, that doesn't mean that that's your only choice. And I often say to yeah. people, if one publisher is reaching out to you and saying to you, you, you should write a book, that means other publishers would be interested. Yeah, and he was even so nice to put me in touch with an agent. It was it, it, he could have totally like just kept the conversation between us and I wouldn't have even known better. So, it was partly because of his kindness to um help me that <laughs> I was able to better advocate for myself. Yeah, that's very interesting. So, um I'm wondering, I know you took all the photos for that book cuz of course you had 
the photography skills to do that, <laughs> which is pretty great. Um, that's also an unusual thing, but is if you can do it, it's really neat because you get a lot more control. Um, yeah. yeah, which a lot of people end up sometimes not liking their own book because they didn't get to do, have as much creative control as they wish. And I could understand how that happens. It, there's so much happening with a book. Like people don't understand, you know, just how the text is laid out. You, you, you know, there's so many parts that are happening, like an index and or they don't understand. Like sometimes you don't have control over that stuff. No, you don't. And it can be disappointing. Um, if you don't realize what you need. Um, And yeah, it's hard. So I'm wondering um, what you sort of got from that experience, from writing that book, what you learned about yourself or what you, how you felt differently after the book came out than you felt before it came out. (laughs) I, I learned so much from that experience. It was hard. It was really hard. I remember when the book came, I like, (laughs) all dramatically like cried. I felt like (laughs) so gratifying to finally be like feel done. And um, it was a really great feeling of accomplishment. And I was really proud of it. But I also felt like I had tried to make a book that other people would want. And I think that was my biggest learning, my biggest lesson from it, that I need to really hone in and like where I'm at and what I want to do. Instead of sort of imagining an audience and trying to please an imaginary audience. Yes. Yes. And why, Um, tell, tell, say a little bit more about that. Like, why is that important? You're never going to please everyone, first of all. And like, for me, I felt like I was, I felt so honored to, to have the opportunity to make a book in the first place. It just felt like, oh my gosh, I get to do this. It's so amazing. How do I how do I use this um, opportunity to the best of my abilities? And I just felt so much pressure um, to make something, and I felt like maybe that was not the best footing mm-hmm. to have this project. Also, I work really insularly. I work by myself at home, and I think I need needed to really have some outside uh, perspective in it too. And that was hard if you're by yourself working. And my editors were in California. Um, so there was like zero face-to-face, which in the book world isn't that crazy, but I it was my first book. I thought there'd be like a lot more hand-holding and back and forth. No, they pretty much like call, mm-hmm. you know, call us in eight months when it's done and we'll take the yeah. file. <laughs> yeah, which is, I don't know. I just, I had this vision that there'd be like people like t- testing it and like no. over there. No, exactly. No, no testing. No testing at all. I and I it just it felt like lonely and overwhelming and I just I, I did the best I could at the moment and I'm very proud of that book very proud but I do think that that was a really good hard learning experience yeah it is it's it's also kind of fascinating to see how another company goes about marketing your artwork, you know? So you create this body of work and give it to them. And it's really a collaboration, even if you do take the photos yourself, which makes it a little bit more under your control, but it still is really a collaboration and they go ahead and package up your work in a certain way and market in a way that they think is going to sell it the best. Yeah. Um, so that's also an interesting see something to see, you know? For sure. Yeah, it's it's it is a collaboration, but it's so strange when you're not when there's not that back and forth in the collaboration, you know? Yeah. It's that, just that was the hard part. You're for half me. and they're half. Yeah. Yeah. 
totally. Yes. Yeah. And then you had the opportunity to teach some classes on craftsy. One was on embroidery and one's on photography, the two things that you have a lot of expertise in. And um, can you speak sort of about that experience and how, I mean, I know most people who have taught classes at Craftsy, which is now called Blueprint, um, really rave about the experience of flying out to Denver and spending the week you know, doing the filming and that piece of it. But I just wondered whether, you know, in comparison to writing a book, how that sort of what that that, that experience taught you. It was really fun. It was really beyond my experience at that point. I had never done anything on film. Um, and that was very intimidating. You know, there's like different cameras you have to look at at different times. And I kept flubbing it and like, <laughs> look at the wrong place. And you you could get overwhelmed with it. I definitely did, but it was a positive experience. And it is a lot like making a book in that the content is as rich and as deep in the class, in both those classes. So much prep work, just like a book. But what I love about it is that it live it, it lives on in a different way than a book does. It's very interactive and people can hop in and out anytime. In terms of like the comparison, I I didn't realize it at the time when I um, said yes to it, but it it almost is just like a book and a little bit to me more financially. Yeah, paid better for sure. Paid, yeah, I mean, in the back, long term. Back yeah. in the old days. I mean, I don't think it does now I, at Blueprint, but it when Craftsy was Craftsy, it did. I mean, it was... It was the best paying gig in town, really, in comparison to writing a book or really anything you yeah. could do. I And when they told me that, I was like, oh, it's like a book, but better. Let's see. <laughs> and you're like, yep, and it, it was. was. Mm-hmm. It was. It was nice. It, it definitely for like a freelancer having like a quarterly payments for something that you did three years ago is yeah. so amazing. <laughs> it was amazing. And I mean, I'm not going to pry, but... I'm guessing that that's changed now. Yeah, definitely. Like there's a fall off too, you know, it's like not as fresh content, you know, so be the same as it first was, but um, yeah. And their model has changed completely. Yeah, totally. They, it's not a la carte anymore. It's like. Yeah. Subscription. uh, Subscription. Yeah. You get paid by minutes watched, which is a really different model. Yes. That's kind of weird. It is weird because you're always like, are these robots doing it right? You know, like who's calculating it back there? Yeah, it is. It's hard to, it's hard to really know. I've talked to quite a few instructors about this, but um, okay. And then you had a chance to write a second book and this book is called Make and Mend. Different publisher, 10 Speed came out last year and it is a, like a Sashiko mending book. And um, if you, I mean, most people, I think at this point in the craft community have seen this sort of beautiful, visible mending that people are doing on their jeans, on their jean jackets, that kind of thing um, with embroidery stitches in the Sashiko style. And it's just so, you know, so trendy, but also just really beautiful and kind of touches on, uh, it's like a moment that we're having with mending, I feel like. Um, I like this moment though. Yeah, it's a good moment. (laughs) Um, So I wondered about this one and how you kind of shifted to mending because obviously a person who embroiders um, can do visible mending, you know, but you kind of added that to your repertoire of kits and to obviously wrote a whole book about it. So how did that take place? There's like a few ways. I don't know if you remember, I was mentioning how I have chronic pain in my neck and my shoulder. 
but it makes it actually hard for me to sit and stitch traditional hooped embroidery. And um, when I stitch Sashiko, Oh, was I saying it wrong? I'm so sorry. (laughs) For some reason, I thought, you know, I only ever read that word. And so, okay, it's Sashiko. I think think if I was saying it right too, it would sound different. Okay. I don't speak Japanese at all. So again, am I mistaken? I didn't even realize I was saying it differently than you, to be honest. (laughs) All right. Um, When I stitch Sashiko, I am able to get a lot more stitches on the needle. And there's not a hoop. Right. So there's less stress on my hands and I could do a lot more a lot faster. So it actually makes it more pleasant for me to stitch. I hardly ever am stitching hooped pieces anymore, mainly because of that. Yeah. um, Physically, it hurts. Injury that I have. Yeah. And I have to actually be really careful. So that's one reason. And another reason was that my, my, again, my boyfriend, he had asked me like, Hey, what can you do on my, my jeans or my jacket? Um, he's like a real denim head and just loves denim and, um, appreciates quality denim things. And he will wear something until it's rags. And he's like, what can you do with embroidery to fix like this? How can I patch this? And I started researching and that's how I kind of, found this style of embroidery and it really clicked with me um, for all those reasons. I loved that it was a functional and embellishment and I could do it without um, feeling pain. And it was like this whole new world of pattern and surface design that I could explore. So I just really took to it right away. And if people want to check it out, you've got these super cool kits. Oh my gosh, last night I was like, I got to go get one of these. So it's like a Sashiko kit and it has, you know, the, the, the floss or the thread in it. And it also has like a kind of like a variety of interesting fabrics that you can use as your patches that you would put, like, let's say there was a big hole in your jeans and the knee, which is where commonly you would have a big hole. You could put this behind and, right, and then use these interesting fabrics that are kind of like a denim weight or like a thicker weight fabric, right? Yeah. So the sampler has like a few, six of the patterns that are from the book. And so that you could practice, you could use them for patching, you can use them to make like household items, like a coaster set or sachet. Um, But the idea is that you're just practicing and playing and it could be a patch or a practice piece too. But I love the idea of someone using it as an actual patch. Yeah, immediately I was like, oh, I got it. This will be perfect because then I don't have to go and like rummage around and find, you know, it's like it comes to you all done. And so you could just like take it with you and, you know, work on an old pair of shorts or something like that by hand. And I love that. I think that's so brilliant. And so, so, um, so I mean, there were several books sort of mending, visible mending books that kind of came out at the same time, as so often happens in craft, I feel like once somebody's on the, you know, on yeah. like the the um, the idea of one concept, one trend, then all the publishers are like, oh, we need one. We need a book on that too. Um, yeah, but they're they're all different in their own ways. They are all ways. different. Yeah, like mine, the number of natural not- dying books, you know, same deal. Uh, yeah. yeah. It's true, and but everyone has their own style and their own ways. Like some are more content heavy, more project heavy, and I have to say that mine, 
gets grouped in with the mending, but it is um, not solely about mending. It's like half mending and half just pure embellishment or pure um, pattern exploration too. Okay. But it does, it does delve deep into the mending. Right. So, so cool. So was this a book that you pitched as well? So again, I had someone see my work and reach out to me. And I had that moment where I'm like, do I want to spend the next year of my life on now this that topic? It, now that you know what it really is about. <laughs> yeah. And I, I could say with confidence, like, yeah, I want to to do this. So again, I did the same process where I wrote a proposal and pitched it. Okay. And the, the person who reached out to me was actually a packager, which yeah. as I as I understand it, and they, they weren't a US-based packager, they were a UK packager. So it didn't make sense to me to go with a packager, especially if they weren't in the United States. So that's part of the reason why I didn't go with the person who reached out to me initially. But again, you were reading that signal as a signal. And I just think that's such a, an important thing to think through. Like if someone's reaching out to you to say, hey, will you do this? What that really is, is a signal, a signal that there's demand. And it doesn't mean that you need to go with that first ask. It just means mm-hmm. that if you, if the ask feels good in some way, you can go ahead and present it to whom the person, the, the, the company that you wanted from most. And it's such a boost of confidence too, because, you know, when we're making work, we like what we do, but when it gets recognized, it's like, oh, okay, yeah, people people are interested. Oh, yeah, yeah. totally. And I also think that it, this speaks to to your um, your decision to put your work out there. So, you know, there's a lot of people who make beautiful things who are really hesitant to share them online, and that hesitancy comes from a fear that. Maybe people will laugh at it or crit- criticize it, but mostly that, oh. that maybe people will copy it. You know, I think there's a lot of people who are really fearful that, you know, people are going to pin it on Pinterest without its attribution back to them, or mm. they're going to remove their watermark and say it's theirs or try to sell it on some site or, you know, without their permission or just so many ways that somebody could copy a design and say it's their own. And so that fear really prevents a lot of people from even sharing their work online. And you've made the decision to share. And as a result of that decision of consistently sharing, a lot of these opportunities have come your way because people out there have just seen it. Yeah, I get that fear though, especially like in my early days of making products. I I felt that way. I'd be like really hesitant to share like a a sample piece or like a sketch thinking that because it felt like the Wild West a little bit with how people were not attributing images. And so as a maker, I totally get that fear. And now I I just realize if you're not sharing, you're you're not present and people will move on. You know, it's like you, there's, there's so much, um, there's so much benefit that comes with sharing just your everyday kind of like work or occurrences. Um, it's nice to just be able to pop in on Instagram and share one pic and then be done, you know? 
Yeah. And I know, I mean, you, you especially come from a photography background and I've spoken to quite a few photographers about this and they actually tend to be a community that's even more hesitant to share because their work is the photograph. You know, it's one thing to take a photograph of like a handmade felt crown that you made or something like that and share the <laughs> share the picture. But if your work is the photo itself yeah, no, and yeah. you share that on Instagram or on your blog or wherever and someone takes it, that is the work, you know? Um, so that's even more difficult for some photographers to overcome. Yeah. Luckily, I'm not like doing high-end photography of my my stuff. But yeah, I could totally see that. This morning I was on Instagram and I saw one of my images on someone's feed where um, they like didn't attribute it. And it felt really weird to know that they're marketing their own products using my picture. It, you know, I mean... It's a weird feeling. Yeah. And, you know, there's different levels of heatedness a person can get into when that happens. You know, you can ask that person to take it down. You can message them. You can email them. You can send them a takedown notice. You can threaten legal (laughs) action. I mean, you know, you can kind of let it get to you to varying degrees and kind of if you allow it, it can take over your whole life. When I, okay, this is kind of embarrassing, but when Etsy was like in it, when I was in my early days of Etsy, I would get copied a lot and I would get like in a huff about it. And I would like write an email like, this is this is not right in our creative community. And like, now I feel like so silly because I realize that it's going to happen. Like, it's just going to happen. And either it's a huge company and then you get really mad. That's when you place, that's when you use that energy. And if it's some some somebody who has like, two sales in their Etsy shop copying you, you just move on and make your next good thing because it's not worth your energy or time or that mental energy of getting mad is just wasted. Yeah. There's risks and there's rewards and you're saying the rewards are far far outweighing the risks. And I think that that's clearly proved true from listening to your story. Um, And um, I did want to make sure we get to your recommendations, but before we do so, I wondered if you could just give us a few Instagram tips because you're really good at Instagram and I can see why. I mean, you've got great (laughs) photography skills. I now wish back in high school, I had paid more attention when I took photo, but um, you have 19,000 plus followers. So you're doing a wonderful job marketing yourself there. And I just wondered whether, you know, for people who are sort of like, how can I do this? What should I be doing? And what is your strategy or how do you think about it? I get very overwhelmed by Instagram. Even one post a day for me seems like a lot because I try to make thoughtful content and write a description that is not um, just like phoning it in. It's overwhelming. And I have to say that working on the book has really helped with that because it's given me some kind of structure and that I know I'm promoting my book or I'm using images from the book. So that's really helped. But I do I do think having Chris in focus images is basic. I use, I'm, I'm opening up my phone right now so I could tell you the app I use to edit my photos. I use Snapseed. Okay, yeah. And that's my favorite um, editing app because it's the most like Photoshop to me, which I'm very comfortable with. One little tip that I use is I desaturate whites in my pictures. It's the selective tool. And I 
drop it onto like a white area and then desaturate that area so it looks actually like white instead of yellow or blue. Oh, nice. Um, and it makes it look like a pro photo that I took with my real camera, not my phone. I don't oh, know. That's a great tip. Yeah, because it gets it like like a, a professional white background instead of just the, the, the haze that, you know, sometimes they're tinted in blue or, or yes, yellow. Yes, I have that problem all the time. Yeah, so if you use that selective tool, you can desaturate the background and make it look really crisp and white. I love that. Thank you for sharing. That's really a good tip for people. <laughs> Snapseed, okay. Um, and so we'll actually add that to your recommendation list because that's a good one too. But you have a couple other recommendations as well and um, things you're enjoying right now. So one of them is Tiny Desk, which is um, from NPR. Yeah, Um I like to put on the Tiny Desk concerts because it's always someone I've never heard of. And I love um, music and finding new um, artists to enjoy. And it's so diverse. I would never have like known to listen to this person. And it's these little intimate concert series that are live at the NPR studios. And they're pretty short too. I think they're like 20 minutes or something. And I don't have to watch it, but I could watch it. It's nice just to have on in the background. Yeah, that's lovely. Lovely way to discover new artists. Totally. Um, and then Duolingo has a podcast. Now, I did not know this. My kids use Duolingo, the app, to learn Spanish. Um, it sounds like you're learning Spanish too, but I didn't know they had a podcast. Yeah, so it's like my lifelong thing to speak Spanish. Like I'm Latina and very proud, but I never grew up in a household that spoke Spanish. My grandparents did, but... Unfortunately, in Los Angeles, when my parents' generation was growing up, there's a lot of racism. And so my family really wanted to, to, to be, you know, American. And so we didn't speak Spanish in the house, which is very, very sad to me. And I'm always listening to podcasts or trying to like play little games or read in Spanish and Duolingo's podcast is really cool because it's half in Spanish and half in English. And they also have transcripts online. So you can go back and kind of test yourself to see if you actually understood. Oh, that's <laughs> great. Might be really good for my middle daughter. And what do they talk about in Spanish on that podcast? It's, it'll be a story from a person. So it'll be different people each time telling a story about their childhood or growing up in a certain area or their family or some some fun thing that happened or some scary thing that happened, all kinds of stuff. Okay. So you're just listening to a native speaker speak. Exactly. And that's so helpful. That's great. Yes. Yeah. Okay, great. And then um, you wanted to recommend a Center for African Diaspora Dance. And is it called Kumbe? Kumbe. Kumbe. So I was... I know not everyone is a New York-based person who's listening, but it's a Brooklyn dance studio. And I just started going there. It's been like a challenge for me. I've set a challenge for myself for every month. I would do something that I'm scared to do. So I did an improv class in January. <laughs> that was crazy scary. And then I started going to dance hall classes at Kumbe and never done choreography before, so intimidated, so scared. And then I did it and it was really fun. So that if anyone is like me and watches um, YouTube videos of like people dancing and think that it would be so fun to try, but you're scared to do it, you should just try. 
I love I that. Did it. Yeah. I survived. You survived. <laughs> exactly. I love that challenge of deciding to just tackle something you're scared of. Um, it's so hard to do, but it's once you get into the practice of doing it, it applies to other areas of your life too. Yes, especially as a freelance person where you're like kind of in your bubble of working and your challenges are real, but they're sometimes, you know, it's hard to kind of see beyond that stuff. It's nice to go outside and do other physical things and challenge yourself. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, Jessica, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the Walshy Naps podcast. I really enjoyed talking with you. Very good. I'm so glad to share. Thank you for giving me that opportunity. Of course. And you've been listening to the Walshy Naps podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Visit my blog, walshynaps.com, where you can sign up for my email newsletter to get the best in sewing, blogging, and small business delivered right to your inbox each week. Today's episode is sponsored by Hobbs Bonded Fibers. Hobbs is not only a sponsor of the podcast, they're also avid listeners as well. Are you looking to take your quilting to the next level? Hobbs would love to provide you with a free sample pack of their battings. Send your sample batting request to sales at hobsbondedfibers.com. And don't forget to enter to win. One lucky Walshy Naps podcast listener will win a collection of Hobbs Tuscany battings. To enter to win, simply send an email titled Walshy Naps Giveaway to Stephanie at shackney at hobsbondedfibers.com. She'll draw the winner using a random number generator and announce the winner on the Hobbs Batting Instagram account at Hobbs Batting on April 15th. Thank you so much, Hobbs Bonded Fibers. And if you enjoy the show, tell a friend about it. Thank you so much and I'll see you next time.